Hello, this is the Landscape Ontario podcast. I am Scott Barber. What makes an awesome playground? What kind of space sparks the creativity and imagination of kids and really, truly inspires play? These are the questions that Adam Bienenstock, founder and principal designer at Bienenstock Natural Playgrounds, has been thinking about for decades. And his answers have led to some really spectacular results. Coming up, my conversation with Adam on why his play spaces are rooted in nature. And we're also gonna look ahead to his amazing plans for what is one of the biggest and most ambitious Canada Bloom feature gardens ever. That is coming up next. The Landscape Ontario podcast is sponsored by Dynascape Software. LO members save 15% on Dynascape products, software upgrades, and online training. Visit dynascape.com for details. Hi, Adam. Um, would you start introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about uh, your business and, and what you do? Absolutely. My name is Adam Bienenstock, and I have a company called Bienenstock Natural Playgrounds, whose sole mission is to connect kids and communities to nature in our urban centers. Now, how, how long have you been in business, and, and where are you based? Well, we started in uh, in the landscape industry in 1984. Um, we're based in Hamilton, uh, uh, Ontario, uh, just outside of Hamilton on your way to Cambridge. Um, that's home base, and we also have a shop in uh, Denver in the U.S. Wow. Now, tell me, tell me, how, when did you, you know, when, how did you get into the natural play, play uh, space um, part of the industry? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. Uh, um, I wish I could tell you I had a sudden epiphany, but it was quite frankly I didn't understand the other playgrounds. They were boring and terrible spaces that were devoid of anything that would interest me. Mm-hmm. So it's quite personal. I was asked to design a playground, and for me that was a creek, and there were some logs that had fallen across it, and it was messy and dirty. And the people who I did it for um, patted me on the head uh, patronizingly and said, "That's." That's nice, Adam, but I wanted a playground. Uh, and there's an archetype that goes along with this thing. So that, to me, it was instantly obvious that they were wrong because I don't remember enjoying that ever, nor do I remember any of my friends enjoying that. Mm-hmm. So the start um, was sort of a combination of that and the fact that my father is one of the uh, leading world experts on how a, bo- a biodiverse environment affects our immune system. He runs a thing called the Brain Body Institute and um, has the Order of Canada for his work in in that. And the guy that was uh, at our place and liked red wine when I was five uh, growing up in, uh, in Hamilton was Fraser Mustard, who wrote the early years study, which is that critical formative um, document upon which our, our early childhood education is, uh, is based over here and in Australia, all on Fraser Mustard's work. And he pushed me into this work saying we need something that's uh, going to hit those main developmental points for kids um, that are critical markers for their development, uh, especially in the early years. So they sort of pushed me towards it and uh, and now I don't know if I'm qualified to do anything else. <laughs> wow, that's uh, th- there is a lot there to unpack. But let's start 
with how you how do you do it? Um, how, you know, how do you um, you know what is it that you do that uh, connects to those two pieces that you just touched on from your your father and and and, yeah. and the friend? Well, I think the the underpinning of everything that we do is that um, if you're de- designing a space for children, whether that's in a city or a childcare facility or a school or a hospital or wherever you're you're going to be doing this, if it's not for their um, for for their development, first and foremost, for those kids, they're they're the client, not the owner of the space, but the people who use this. If we're not doing something that's there for the optimal development of that user base, those kids, then we're making a mistake. So it doesn't matter which metric you start to look at. Sensory engagement, if you're looking at risk, and I'm one of the co-authors of the systematic literature review on outdoor risky play, and and so we uh, sort of have a, a fair amount of expertise in this. If it's about risk, the most important thing you can do is have those kids cognitively engaged, have their brains in the game. So you need to have sensory engagement amongst your kids for them to actually be better at assessing risk. That is actually more important than any of this stuff that we would do, that we need those senses engaged. If you need the senses engaged, then you need nature. You're not going to be able to do that unless you have things that are sensory rich, smell, sight, sound, touch, we need to have all five senses and then a couple more. The other two are kinesthetic sense and vestibular engagement. And that's vestibular engagement is that movement that you see amongst kids. You could be rolling down a hill, walking across a rope. So you'll notice in a lot of our work, we have things that move and that we're encouraging people to climb trees because then you have a multi-sensory engagement while you're doing your physical play. And then the last bit of this stuff, and this is the one that's missing so strongly, is that we've made playgrounds over the last 20 years all about physical play. And during that time, while that focus has happened, we've watched kids in less and less and lower and lower numbers actually engage in physical play, while we've made our playgrounds purely about that. So we are clearly failing on some level with this stuff, and we haven't been addressing it as a society. And it's that myopic focus on physical play without taking into account kids' obesity levels, kids' phobias, kids with disabilities. We've created spaces over the last 20 years. The standard has created spaces that are great. If you're the most physically fit and the most aggressive kid, you can take over those spaces that are fully paved and that have no sensory engagement and are just about gross motor. We want something for the other kids. Right now, only about 30% of the kids are getting 90% of the physical activity out of the current state of playgrounds in North America. So that that means 70% of the kids are only getting 10% of the physical activity. No wonder we have obesity issues. So we need to have a way in for all kids. So we need to stop just looking at this as something for gross motor and think about it for fine motor activity, something for creative and dramatic play, quiet contemplative space for the kid who just can't handle all of that. But we need to think about play more broadly. And so that's what what this actually becomes in a natural playground, is all of those various different play settings and all of its facets and forms. Can I ask, I, I have a feeling you've thought about this, um, why <laughs> do you think, <laughs> why do you think, you know, society, um, you know, why are we building playgrounds that have these issues, that have these deficiencies, that aren't 
um, you know, taking these other um, so important issues into account? Well, I think the goalposts have moved for professionals in the uh, uh, in our cities and in the parks departments that order these things, and to to a large extent, um, this becomes budget and maintenance decisions as opposed to developmental decisions um, for kids. And and if you go back 20 years, frankly, we all had roam rates. We we went out till the street lights, you know turned on or it was dinner time and that was our normal and it didn't matter if the place dresser kind of sucked or not it, it actually didn't matter at all because we were we were out in the woods or up the creek or getting ourselves dirty and we had our our dose of nature constantly um in front of us and uh you know six eight hours a day and the the numbers have changed drastically. Now we have 52 and a half hours a week as an average screen time for kids. We have the average amount of time outside is 48 minutes a day. We have a situation where for more than 30% of the kids in this country, they literally don't go outside every day. So more than a third of our kids don't go outside every day. They have 24 hour shut in periods throughout the week. So. It is not surprising that the need has changed and that none of the people who, who take on the management of properties, um, you know, signed up to be healthcare professionals. But in the end, it turns out that one of the most important interventions that we have and the cheapest interventions we have is all about that time that they spend, those kids spend engaged in play. And we need to create those spaces that kids have lost. I mean, the roam rates have dropped to somewhere around 300 yards from somewhere around, you know, six to 10 kilometers over the ca over the past few decades. So in that comes a different set of requirements. And yet we're still purchasing playgrounds based on the model from 20, 30 years ago. And that's that's one of the fundamental mistakes. There's this big second one, too, and that is about perceived risk. And people think that, unfortunately now, the boogeyman lives in the woods, that nature is more dangerous, that this unrestricted free play, this non-prescriptive type of play is somehow more dangerous, when in fact the data comes back that it is as much as 30 times less likely to have a hospital visit from one of these uh, natural play areas, play environments, than it is uh, from a standard plastic and steel one. So bumps, bruises, and scrapes are going up, but those are critically important learning injuries of course. as opposed to hospital visits. So that lack of understanding of what the real injury rates are and the perceived risk that people have also adds to, you know, the, let's just do something pre-engineered straight out of a catalog, press the easy button, and go. But the landscape approach just does work better. Yeah. So what makes it different? What 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 is you know what how would you explain the differences that allow mm. these natural style places play spaces to touch those other elements that engage the uh, the kids their senses and, and so forth and all these things you've talked about. What makes them different? Yeah. Well, I mean fundamentally um if you think about it, just on an evolutionary scale, how we evolved as human beings, we all grew up where the water was. 
in the riparian buffers on the edge of the river, or on the edge of the ponds or lakes or streams. That is how, you know, humankind developed. And not surprisingly, those same environments are the ones that we actually need in order to get that dose of macro microorganisms that are fundamental to our health. We need that sensory input. It turns out that if you spend too much time on a screen, you become uh, more likely to have problems with your eyes and eyesight and myopia and inability to focus, literally focus. You also have the figurative side of that. You become much less likely to be able to sit still and focus in a school. So, so in, in, in that classroom setting. So we, we need to have all of our senses fired up. But if you think about early childhood, if you think about a three, four-year-old kid, a smart board or a piece of plastic isn't going to do it for that kid. It isn't going to make that kid have something to talk about or to interact with another kid about. But if you give them sand and mud and sticks and trees and bushes and shrubs and little bugs and all of those things, that strikes up a conversation. It strikes up movement. So not surprisingly, you will see those kids engage more profoundly the more sensory and the more natural that experience is. And that's also on an evolutionary scale critically important. This is from from that perspective of who we are as human beings. We have not evolved past the need for that contact. So and yet if you go now and look at, you know, in our national parks, for instance, it's an ever increasing age of user. You go to the botanic gardens, an ever-increasing age of user. In other words, new people are not getting turned on to this. You look at the landscape industry, we have a critical shortage of people who are educated and interested in horticulture as a career because they have never loved it, they've never experienced it, so that they've never thought of that as something that was a worthwhile career later. So here we are with tens of thousands of people that we need to come and join us in the industry. We just simply can't find them because they never had that contact early on. So all of these things add up to um, a deficit that we haven't recognized. And one of the first big players in this, and you go to David Sobel, and then you go to Richard Louvre, and then you go to Suzuki, in a conversation with Suzuki, David Suzuki, um, who actually says that all playgrounds should be natural playgrounds, mm-hmm. critical for their development. You talk to him, um, and he will—he is uh, it was fascinated to hear him say he wishes that he started with kids, that back when he was trying to do his work, that he wishes that he had started communicating more with kids, and that going for the grown-ups may not have been the right strategy. Interesting. So... We, we need to have them experience it, to love it, to save it later. So from an environmentalist perspective, it's also critically important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk a little bit about what you're doing, what uh, your company's doing at uh, Canada Blooms. Um, sure. Just coming up, uh, you know, hoping, this, hoping a lot of our listeners will catch this before the show or during the show, and it'll pique their interest to... Uh, to see what's going on. So tell us, what do you have planned? Uh, I know you're you're down at uh, the Entercare Center this morning, uh, getting yeah. ready. Uh, tell us about what's going on. Oh, we, we've uh, <laughs> this thing is a bit of a beast. I'll be honest. <laughs> it's it's eight thousand square feet and two stories high, and 
Um, and and we've been working, and I've been inspired by the folks at Windreach Farm, um, who have uh, it was it was founded by a three-time uh, Paralympian who the, the best way to get him to do something was to tell him that he was not going to be able to because of his disability, um, and he had uh, cerebral palsy, and so he, you're not going to be able to ride a horse, no problem. So he got on a horse and became an equestrian Paralympian. Not going to be able to ski, no problem. He got figured out how to get on a, a mono ski and make it work. This is the stuff that inspires us. You're not going to take away those fundamental experiences with nature that we all take for granted just because of a mobility uh, issue or some other disability. So we're creating an 8,000 square feet space that celebrates that. It's fully universally accessible that provides opportunities for kids of every ability to engage in all aspects of play. So sensory experience all the way from the pond and stream to the the logs and the sand play area that has water in it to the gross motor area that has ropes and logs and is open-ended and non-prescriptive uh, to the tree fort that's gone in and musical instruments that actually vibrate the, the soil at the wavelength of the music. So if you're hearing impaired, you will feel the music literally. So we are looking for something that, that has every aspect of it, has more than one sense engaged and everything is looked at as an accessibility play. So everybody, not just for wheelchairs and one type of wheelchair. We'll also have a number of wheelchairs available to people when they arrive, mobility devices that will make it possible to access every square inch of the place without paving it, as well as having a one to 20 uh, slope across the entire thing that allows people to move through the space regardless of their mobility device. So, um, and, and this is also working with people who are on autism spectrum disorder uh, as, as well. So people who have um, sensory processing uh, disorders um, or, or deficits and, and how to provide a space that works for them as well. So we're doing that. And to be perfectly honest, we're just having a blast. It's, it's, it's just to have fun. So it's to prove to grandparents and parents and kids that um, these experiences that a lot of those grandparents remember, that some of the parents remember that most of the kids haven't experienced yet, is something that they can all enjoy together in a safe way that uh, that is engaging and fun. So uh, my guys are having way too much fun <laughs> right now. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, and it, obviously a huge, huge garden. Um, one of the probably uh, when I was talking to Terry Kato, the show manager, he was saying it might be the biggest that they've ever had. Um, a huge undertaking. How how are you making this happen? Um, obviously, uh, a logistical challenge. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, all of these things are. Everyone in the landscape industry knows how much of a, a pain these things can be. <laughs> um, so we did a we did a pre build um, at our shop first, and uh, there's not a whole lot of manufacturing going on, and um, and we've got round the clock, uh, so we've got three shifts. We've you know rented a house next door uh, to the uh, um, to the direct energy center so that we can put everybody up, and uh, and they they work 
uh, back to back three shifts, 24 hours a day, wow. sometimes doubling up. We're working with other subtrades as well. So New Nature has joined us to sort of help us out. They've done some build work with us in the past. And Joe Genovese, who's been on the show in the past, has come in to work with us on the pond and the stream. And so, so you know, it's just round the clock, head down in the end. But this is a well-oiled machine. This thing was set out on a Gantt chart down to the minute. And um, I'm happy to say that we're about six hours ahead of uh, our charted point at this moment. So we're pretty confident we're going to be able to get there. We might even cancel one of the night shifts. Fantastic. Man, I cannot wait to see kids and families um, getting to experience this uh, this space. And I, I mean, obviously, that's from an outside perspective for you and your team. That must be just really fulfilling to see people get to enjoy these spaces. Oh, it, it's, it is one of the most exciting bits of the work. I mean, it's funny that all of us in our careers somehow end up spending, you know, way too little time actually watching people enjoy our work. Right? It's most of the time you get in, you get it sorted as fast as you can, you clean everything up, you make sure the client's happy, and then you're on to the next, and, and you never quite see that moment. In this case, we got 10 days to actually watch how kids play and how they engage. Our education department will be out, so there'll be a number of different uh, uh, programs available uh, on the site as well, and various different uh, uh, groups that we also work with are going to be part of this uh, to make sure that there's something for everybody to do mm -hmm. from a fine motor play perspective and something to create. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 going to be uh, kind of great for my whole team, I think, to be able to see the entire gamut of this from build to experience and on. I bet that'll be a, a really uh, energizing way to, you know, kick off the spring season as you as you as you ramp up for the spring and the summer, to have everybody yeah. have this experience to see see how much people enjoy these the work that you do. I'm sure by the third or fourth day, once people are are coming back out from uh, sleeping for 24 exactly. hours, that that's yeah. going to be the that's going to be the case for my team. <laughs> but I, I think they're just going to be relieved to see the 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 opening day come and have it finished. Uh, but uh, bet, yeah, by yeah. day two or three, you'll probably see most of my team coming back. It's a bit of a gauntlet, the, the time window to get it all done. I bet, but uh, yeah. hopefully it'll be it'll really pay off. With uh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure it will with a with a great product or with a great space yeah well what doesn't kill you right it'll uh <laughs> exactly. it'll make it all stronger so exactly excited about it it's, it's a fun one there uh this one is the biggest one we've done and we always try and top the last time so uh so this, this should do it awesome um well i think maybe we'll leave it there and and uh you know just ask uh, people to, to go to canadablooms.com and check it out um, and to hopefully get tickets and, and come down to the Entercare Center. It's going on March 13th to the 22nd. Of course, that's 2020. Um, this is just one of, uh, this is a special one certainly, but one of many um, you know feature gardens that'll be there this year, um, many of which by LO members like yourself. And uh, yep. it's going to be a really exciting show. Um, yeah, I, I just want to thank you for taking some time. I mean, we we touched, we just sort of scratched the surface on the, on some really really interesting and uh, really fascinating and important topics. Um, we didn't go, you know, really deep into. Maybe maybe we have a conversation again down the line and, and really dig into some of the yep. topics that you touched on because they they certainly warrant that uh, 
that uh, that deep dive to to a bigger audience. So I thank you. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. Uh, and if anyone wants more information on what we do, it's naturalplaygrounds.ca. Perfect. Thanks, Adam. Right. And, Thanks for your and help. Good luck as you uh, as you get ready for the show. Pleasure, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Landscape Ontario podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, we hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get new episodes every month. And if you have an idea for the show, please email me at scott at landscapeontario.com. Thanks for listening.